0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We as a people love to be known. We love it when we have that friend who just gets us. You don't even have to say things. They understand what you're saying, what you're thinking before you even say it. We love to be known. We also love to understand ourselves, to know ourselves. There are so many ways that we try to figure out our own identities. We have personality tests. You have things like, are you an otter or are you a golden retriever? I don't know if you've ever taken one of those tests before. You have type A personalities and all of these different identities and character qualities and uh, characteristics about our personalities. We love to be known so much that people even look to the stars to find their identity. They look to the stars to see if this is the month that I was born, Then these are the characteristics I have, and look, the the solar system even knows who I am. We love to be known. Or sometimes we take those little quizzes on our phones. Have you ever taken those quizzes before that say, you know, what character are you from the office, or, you know, what... Character, you are, are you from Beauty and the Beast? I took that one recently. What character am I from Beauty and the Beast? I got Mrs. Potts, and I really don't know what to do with that. We love to be known, and this morning Jesus is going to tell us a story that every single person in this room will find themselves in. In this story, He will open up our hearts. He will examine us, for us, and ask us to identify ourselves. He will say, which character you most like? As he tells this story. And we will be fully known by the time we are done hearing this story. We will be fully known. We will understand that we are fully known. We might even get a greater sense of knowing ourselves. But the story doesn't end there because we will not just be fully known by the God of the universe. We will see that we are fully known and fully loved. That he knows everything there is to know about us. And for some, as we studied even this morning in Sunday school, for some, God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, the fact that he knows everything there is to know about you, for some, that is terrifying because they know there are things that I don't want anyone to know. There are things that I want to keep secret, keep hidden, and if the God of the universe can see them, then I'm terrified of him. And then there are people for whom God's all-knowing nature is actually a comfort because they realize I am fully known and fully loved at the exact same time. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark together, making our way through This amazing book, we find ourselves in chapter 4, where Jesus began to teach in a very different teaching style than he ever had. He had been teaching very clearly, very openly, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, but now he is teaching in parables. And so last Lord's Day, we asked the question, what are parables and why did Jesus start speaking in parables? And we looked at the why Jesus started speaking in parables because of those four conflicts with the religious leaders that led him to a place where he realized they were determined in their disbelief. They would not believe. They had hard hearts that would not accept the gospel. And therefore, Jesus says, I'm not giving you any more truth clearly that you would reject. It was a judgment, yes, but it was also grace because he's not giving them anything else that they will be accountable for. He's concealing the truth. But he doesn't want to conceal it from everybody. He wants to conceal it from those who don't want to believe in him. And he wants to reveal it to those who do And that led us to what a parable is. We defined a parable as earthly stories thrown alongside spiritual realities. Remember, parable is uh, two Greek words put together, para, which means alongside, and balo, which means to throw. So two Greek words put together, uh, para, balo, to throw alongside. It's an earthly story thrown next to a spiritual reality. And it's for the purpose of concealing truth from those who do not want to hear, while revealing truth to those who do. So to those who would press deeper into the story, they will see truth. To those who think that Jesus is a crazy madman, this story will give them more ammunition to say, I knew he was crazy, and to walk away. So who are you? Will you press deeply today and listen to the master speak? Will you press deeply into his story? And listen to him speak this morning. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's read the word of God. Jesus began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and they ate it up. other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched, because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are on the outside get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may, not, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they would return and they would be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves. They're only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. This is the very word of our great, awesome, holy, and loving God. Let's ask his blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father, we come and we ask that you would do exactly what we prayed earlier through song. Break the hard and stony ground. Help our unbelief. Cause your word to plant deep in us and bear fruit. May we see ourselves, yes, but as we examine our hearts in light of this story, God, I pray that we would, we would examine ourselves, but we would stare at Christ. We wouldn't stare at ourselves. We wouldn't stare inward. We would stare upward. And that's why we pray, show us Christ. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that we would see Christ, that we would bow the knee to him in joyful submission, and that he would be our greatest treasure both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So we have this story that Jesus teaches, a parable of soils, a story of soils, Jesus, in verse 1, is teaching in the boat. Remember, this is the largest crowd that he's ever seen because he had said earlier that day, hey, get a boat ready because if the crowd gets any bigger, I'm going to need to get into the boat and teach from the boat so they don't press in, crowd in on me. Um, so now he's in the boat. The crowd has gotten so big. This is the same day as the blast of the Holy Spirit. This is a long day of ministry. He's in the boat. He's teaching. And as he teaches, we need to culturally understand what the original audience would have heard and how they would have understood it. This parable can be a little bit foreign to us because we don't do a lot of sowing ourselves. So these four soils, we're going to examine these four soils in the story, and then we're going to listen to Jesus give us an understanding of what they represent spiritually. So verse 3, Jesus starts by saying, listen to this. Remember that Greek word, listen, is the word akuo, where we get acoustics from. So listen, ears up, ears open, listen to this. Receive this. It says, behold, the sower went out to sow. This would be just a farmer with a seed bag. And if you can think in your mind like a square, there would be a, a field that had already been freshly plowed. All of the um, rocks are out of it. All of the bad things are out of it. And here... The sower is able to sow the seed into that field. And there would typically be around that field uh, a road, a, a perimeter road around this square field. And so he's walking on this square road on the outside, throwing seed into the field. So he'd throw far to get it onto the middle. He'd throw a little bit more shallow to get it onto the side. And as he's sowing, Jesus says... Behold, the sower goes out to sow, verse four, as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road or on the road and the birds come and they eat it up. This is soil number one. We could call it the roadside soil. It's a well-beaten footpath along the field. You'd have the field in the middle where you would sow and reap the harvest and you'd have the path Along the outside. And so this is seed just falling out of his hand. Or falling out of the seed bag. Onto this well-beaten path. This has been walked by many, many people. This is hard as concrete. So the seed would just lie there. And it would either be trampled. Which is what Jesus says in Luke's account of this story. Trampled. uh, Luke chapter 8 verse 5. Trampled by people as they walk by. Or eaten by birds as Jesus says here. The second soil. Verses 5 and 6, we could call the rocky soil. So we've got the roadside soil, and we've got the rocky soil. The rocky soil, verse 5, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. That's the key here, because when I hear rocky ground, I think there's rocks inside of the soil. So, you know, the seed bounces off the rocks as it's being thrown into the soil. No, that's not what's happening here. The farmer would have gone through the soil. He would have gotten all the rocks out of the soil. So what's happening here is there is a limestone bedrock underneath the soil. You couldn't see it. He's taken out all of the little rocks or the big rocks that are there that are visible. He's removed all of those. But there's a slab of rock underneath this soil. Even today in Israel, there are rocks everywhere. There's limestone all over the place. The running joke when I lived in Israel was that the national flower of Israel is limestone. It's just all over the place, it's everywhere, and it's under a lot of soil. And so what this farmer would do is he'd go in by hand, he'd remove all of the rocks, and then he would take a plow with that blade that would go under the soil and dig out a trough where the seed could be thrown into and then covered up, and then he'd be good to go. But underneath that blade, about 8 to 10 inches down, would be a slab of limestone that that blade wouldn't touch. So he thinks this is good soil. So he scatters the seed. But because it doesn't have much soil, it immediately, verse five, springs up because it had no depth of soil. So as the seed is starting to grow, the roots hit that bedrock. And because that plant is using all of its energy to grow down and to grow deep, And now it has no more places to grow down because of this limestone. Now all that energy is going to be reversed and shoot up. And so it's going to spring up. It's going to grow faster than all of the other plants around it because it's hit that bedrock. Because of that, verse 6, after the sun had risen, that plant is scorched because it had no root. Because it had no depth of root. It wasn't able to get down, get nourishment, get water. So it grows up faster than all the other plants, which we would think that's a good thing. That's a bad thing because it's not growing down, it's growing up. Has no roots. And so it's scorched. Third soil, verse seven. We could call it the thorny soil or the weed infested soil. Uh, Other seed falls among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. So somewhere in the soil, Probably deep inside, there's wild vegetation growing. There's thorns, there's weeds, there's nettles, there's thistles, there's bad things. And so as the seed goes in and starts to grow, the weeds choke out that seed. They eat all the nutrients in the soil so that that seed can't eat anything. They drink all the water in the soil so that that seed has no water. They block the sunlight so that that seed has no sun. They choke out the life. And finally, there's the good soil, soil number four, the good soil. This is verse 8. Other seed fell into the good soil. And as they grew up, they increased and they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. This is fertile soil filled with nutrients, filled with water. It's been prepared. There's nothing to choke it out. And it yields a crop 30, 60, to 100 fold. And Jesus ends the story in verse 9 by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's that word again, Akuo. So Akuo bookends this story. He says, listen, tells a story, and then says, listen, receive it. Then there's an interlude, verses 10 through 12, where he goes into the house and people who think that he is the Messiah, he is this rabbi who's teaching good truths from God. They say, I know that that sounds crazy, but there's something there and I want to know what it is. And they're pressing in. And he gives, we looked at this last Lord's Day, he gives the example, the, the illustration of concealing and revealing. You have been given the mystery of the kingdom, but to them it's been concealed, it's still a secret to them. Why? Because of their determined disbelief. But I just want to reiterate, as we clarified last Lord's Day, people could have asked Understanding. Anyone could have gone to him. It's not like if the religious leaders went to him and said, I want to understand what you meant by that. I want to hear the teaching inside of that story. I want to hear and I want to submit. It's not like he would have said to them, sorry, I'm hiding these things from you. Anyone who wanted to understand could have asked. Anybody could have asked. And so the disciples ask, what did that mean? That sounds weird. That sounds kind of crazy. It also just sounds kind of boring. It's so typical back then. Everyone listening to this story would have said, well, of course that's what happens. What's the point? And so that's why they're asking, what's the point? And those who believe, to them, more would be revealed. To those who didn't, the truth wouldn't stick. In fact, this parable is so important. Verse 13, Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable, you're not going to understand any of the parables. And so he explains the parable in verses 14 through 20. And as he explains, again, he is Asking us to ask, which soil are you? Which soil are you? Who are you? And do you see yourself in this story? We have four soils that we've already seen, and he's going to go back through each soil, one at a time, and tell us the spiritual meaning behind each story. So let's hear him as he does that, and let's ask that we would see ourselves, that God would show us ourselves in light of these stories. Verse 14, he says, The sower sows the word. The sower is anyone who spreads the seed. Anybody who sows the seed. It is Jesus, yes, but it's not just Jesus. It's anybody who throws out the word of God. They throw the seed. The seed is the word. The sower sows the word. So the seed that's being scattered is the word of God. It's the word of the kingdom, Matthew says. It's the word of the gospel. It's the word of God. So anybody who throws out the word of God is a sower sowing the seed. And the soils represent human hearts. Luke chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says that when the devil comes to take the word out of their hearts. So he's equating soil with heart. It's your heart. It's your soul. It's who you are. It's the control center of everything you do. So we have the seed, the sower and the soil. The seed is the word, the sower is anyone who spreads the word, and the soils are human hearts. And there's four here. There's four representations of human hearts. Number one, the roadside soil. The roadside soil. He says, verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Immediately Satan comes. So he said that the birds come and take it away. So the birds are a representation of Satan in this parable. They come and they take away the word. This is a human heart that has been trampled underfoot by the multitude of iniquities that continually traverse it. It's not fenced in. This heart lies exposed to any evil that would come stomping along. It's never plowed by conviction or cultivated by contrition, never feels guilt, never has genuine repentance. It is a hard heart. This person has a hard heart that is exposed, unfenced, and completely unbroken. And Satan just waits. Satan just waits. For the word to hit that heart, bounce off, and be taken away. It's a calloused heart. To use the words of the Bible, it's a stiff-necked heart. I think Jesus, in context, is describing the religious leaders. They are hard-hearted in their determined disbelief. They will not believe no matter what Jesus says, no matter what Jesus does, no matter what evidence is given, they will not believe. Stephen said... Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, when he is about to be martyred, he says that the Pharisees are a stiff necked people in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. These are defiant people. Acts chapter 17 tells us that there are people, as Paul preached of the resurrection at Mars Hill, when he says Jesus has been raised from the dead, it says that some sneered at him. That's these kinds of people. They will not receive, they have hard hearts. Now, people have the ability to deliberately harden their hearts. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 15 says, they have stiffened their necks so that they would not hear my words. So this soil says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So it might be very easy for you if you're sitting here to go, well, that's clearly not me because I'm sitting listening to the word of God. And I would say, praise the Lord, amen, and amen. And quite possibly this isn't a reference to you. But here's my question. What do you do after you hear the word? What do you do after you hear the word? Because hard-hearted people do nothing. Hard-hearted people hear the word and it just pings right off of their soul. And they walk away and they say, nothing. I got nothing out of that. There's nothing there. If you don't do anything after you hear the word preached, there's a question of is there hardness in your heart? You might not be this soil in its entirety, but there's a question. Do you have a hard heart? The second soil is the rocky soil. So we've got the roadside soil, which represents a hard heart. A stiff-necked person, I will not receive. I will reject no matter what. Secondly, we have the rocky soil, and this really is the polar opposite to the first soil. This soil receives instantly. Verse 15, or verse 16 rather, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They love the word. They hear the word. They receive it with joy and they instantly start growing. They respond immediately, but their response will ultimately prove to be superficial. It's temporary. They have no deep root in the gospel, so they will wither away quickly. If the first soil is hard-hearted people, the second soil would be shallow responders. They respond to the word but in a shallow way. They hear the word, but shallowly. They respond in a shallow sense. Again, polar opposite of the first, because the first soil says, I don't want it at all. The second soil receives instantly with joy and gladness, but it's not long lasting. Back when I was doing youth ministry, I was a student ministries pastor, and uh, this was just every youth camp, right? This represents every youth camp ever in the existence of the world. Because the youth that you know hates God, lives this pagan lifestyle, in absolute rebellion against God, at the youth camp, at the youth retreat, is crying and going, I want Jesus, I want to be saved, and you go, awesome, Praise the Lord, let's follow him together. And then you get down the mountain and that mountaintop experience withers away and a week later, they're right back to their same old sin and they go, I don't really care. That's the rocky soil. But what brings about the change in this person's life? Verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves. They're only temporary. Then when affliction That's the word flipsis in the Greek, which means pressure. When pressure or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Persecution and pressure. Something happens and they say, this isn't what I signed up for. Remember, the bedrock is right under the surface. It's under the surface. Affliction and persecution are just under the surface. And for those who love Jesus and will follow him no matter what, that affliction and persecution is so deep down that they can keep growing and they'll be fine. God will make a way for that rock to be broken up and they can grow right past it. But for some, affliction and persecution is exactly what will show I'm not following Jesus for the right reasons. I'm following Jesus for different reasons. It's very interesting because that would be my question to you this morning. Why did you choose to follow Jesus? If you are a follower of Jesus, what is it that makes you follow him? Why did you choose to say yes to him and no to everything else? What is it that you want from him? This soil shows that somebody signed up saying, I want Jesus but I want him because he's going to give me a better life. And then when that life, that better life didn't happen in their minds, when affliction comes, when persecution comes, they go, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to follow Jesus because he loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life, and everything's going to be so much better. What if Jesus would say, actually, I have promised you in this world, you will have tribulation." That's why I ask, why did you choose to follow Jesus? This is, by the way, why trials, pressure, persecution, these are a good thing. These are a blessing for believers because they reveal that your roots aren't hitting up against the bedrock of shallow belief. They show that your roots are going much deeper into the depths of the character of God. This is why Peter and James both say trials are a good thing. You've been there. If you are a follower of Jesus and you love him, you've been there where you go into a trial and you think this is the worst thing I've ever gone through and I just want relief. And as you trust in the Lord, your love for him grows and you come out of that trial and you say something to the effect of, I would never wish that on anybody, but if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Why? Because it showed that you love God for God. You don't love God for the things that he can give you. You love him for him. But not this soil. When persecution and affliction arises, which it's going to, we're promised that, immediately they fall away. Why did you follow Jesus? Why did you choose him? Because if it's for any other reason than just him, because you love him, then something's going to happen in your life that's going to knock you out of soil that could grow you into a fruitful believer. It will knock you away because you're following him for something other than just him. Third soil, the thorny soil, verse, three, or verse 18. Others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, very similar to the second soil, the rocky soil. They receive the word, but that word is then choked out. Verse 19, the worries of the world. Literally, it's the distractions of the age. That means it can be any distraction. It doesn't have to be the only ones that Jesus speaks of here, though these are helpful. It can be whatever distraction that is there in this age, whatever distraction that's there in the world. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The soil had been well plowed, and it was deep enough, but there were impurities in this soil. Things that steal nutrients away from the seed. This is an evidence of people who are stuck in worldliness. They're preoccupied with worldly matters, with the cares of the world, with deceitfulness of riches, with sinful pleasures. This is the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus says to him, sell all that you have and follow me. Now, you don't have to sell all that you have in order to follow Jesus. What Jesus is doing is getting at that thing that is keeping him from following Jesus. And so he says, sell all that you have and follow me. And the man says, I can't do that. And it says, because he loved his possessions and he couldn't follow Jesus because of it. He goes away sad. He loved his wealth and his land more than God. This is the man in Luke chapter 9 who says, I want to follow you, Lord, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus responds in a very strange way. Let the dead bury their own dead. It's a very interesting passage. There's a couple different possible interpretations. But I think one that makes a lot of sense in what Jesus is saying is, this man is saying, let me wait until my father dies in order to get the money that is mine, my inheritance. I don't want to follow you now. I have a lot of money that's about to happen. Let me get my money and then I'll follow you. And Jesus is saying, do you love me more than money? Do you love me more than wealth? Now, please hear me. Material wealth is not inherently evil, nor is pleasure. Pleasure was designed by God. God invented pleasure. And when properly prioritized, both pleasure and wealth can be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving and even used for the greater glory of God. But it is evil to love those gifts more than the giver. We say that at CBC all the time. God's gifts make terrible gods. That's what Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 13. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you can't serve both. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, Paul tells Timothy that it's the love. This is a misquoted verse all the time. It's not Money is the root of all evil. A lot of people think that, that that's what the Bible says. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. Paul says, you can write it down, look it up. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9-10. The love of money is a root, so not the root, not definite article, the, but a, indefinite article. It's one of many roots of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Why? Because it can pull you away from following Jesus and say, I love money more than him. Nothing is more hostile to the truth of the gospel than love for riches and pleasures in this world. To say, I want this world and I want everything that it has. That's why John says in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 16, which we studied last year, do not love the world or the things in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's contrary to the love of God. So this person, this third soil, is a person who wants salvation and wants the world at the same time. That's this person. They want to serve God and they want to serve money. They want God, but they want to still retain control of themselves. This is a heart that is enthralled with sin. Luke and Mark say the desire or pleasure for other other things chokes out the word. The gospel commands a complete break from the distractions of this age. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him. And this man says... This is a a staggering reality that I think is probably seen best in Judas. This man says, I want to be close to Jesus and follow him. But in, in the end, you prove that you were never following Jesus for Jesus. You loved something more than him. Judas rejected the true Jesus for a Jesus that was kind of made in his own image and imagination. And Jesus is saying here, you can't have me and everything else. You must make a choice. Demas as Paul says, in love with this present age, has denied the faith. This is a person who wants Christ, but doesn't want to let go of everything else to have him. And so this person, this soil, brings up a question. What is it that you love the most in life? What is it that you love the most? What might Jesus be asking you to give up today in order to follow him? What is it that you cherish? What is it that you treasure? Have you submitted every aspect of your life to God? Are you still sovereign over your own life, king over your own life? This soil, so the first soil is a hard-heartedness towards God. The second soil is a shallow soil. It's a shallow heart. But this third soil just loves Sin, loves anything other than God, wants an equal. I can love God and love something else equally. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You need to turn from sin. You need to turn. This is why we, we, use, we use affection language so much at this church. Affections, devotion, love, treasuring, cherishing, satisfaction. Because it boils down to what is it that you want the most. I love the way that Thomas Watson, an old Puritan pastor, said, he said, we are to find as much bitterness in weeping for sin as ever we found sweetness in committing it. So as we commit sin and we love it and we enjoy it, Thomas Watson said, true repentance will be an equal and opposite reaction of bitterness in having to fight against it and seeing how much of an offense it was to God. And saying, God, I want none of that. So what used to be sweet to us, now we bitterly weep over and we despise, we reject. So we have the roadside soil, we have the rocky soil, we have the thorny soil. And lastly, we have the good soil. The good soil, verse 20. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit... 30, 60, and 100 fold. Notice the last soil, soil number three, end of verse 19, it becomes unfruitful. What's the defining characteristic of a good heart, good soil that receives the word? Is it receiving the word? No, because soil number two and three both receive the word, right? The rocky soil receives the word. The thorny soil receives the word. It's only the the roadside soil that never even receives it. Both... Soil two and three look like they're receiving in such a way where they're saved, but then they prove that they're not saved. So what's the evidence that we have of genuine salvation taking place? It's fruitfulness. It's continually bearing. Verse 20, they receive it, they accept it, and they bear. This is a present progressive. Continually bearing. They keep on bearing. It never stops. And I love this because it's not in perfection. It's in progression. We keep on growing in godliness. But if we can define the distinguishing mark of true conversion according to this parable, it would be a holy life and a holy love. A holy life and a holy love. Holy love, you are saying I love Jesus more than I love the things of this world. I'm following him for him. And a holy life, fruitfulness that keeps on growing. I love how he says that they bear 30, 60, and a hundredfold. That means that not all Christians are equally fruitful. I love that. If you've ever felt this sense of being let down, you stare at other people or you read biographies of Christians who have gone before us and you just think, man, am I even a Christian? Look at what these people are doing for Jesus. Look at what these people are doing for the gospel. Look at how much they're doing in the work and the service of the King. And what am I doing? Jesus would say, you're bearing 30 fold fruit keep doing it. Don't look at the hundredfold fruit guy and say, why am I not like, like him? Don't look at him and say, I better be bearing his kind of fruit. No, he's hundredfold. You're thirtyfold. Stay in your lane. Keep producing your fruit and follow the Lord. I love that. That should be so encouraging to us. That's why the author of Hebrews says so clearly in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, we fix our eyes on Christ. We don't fix our eyes on our fruitfulness. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't fix your eyes on the cloud of witnesses around you. You fix your eyes on Christ. You listen to the witnesses, but you look to Jesus. I love that. All Christians have fruit that's obvious. That's what this is saying. But not all Christians have equally the same fruitfulness. There should be fruit that's easy to identify, not so scarce that it's hard to find. And it's lasting fruit. It's lasting fruit. It's fruit that keeps on producing. A big-time crop back then would have been about sevenfold. And so he says, this is going to be 30, 60, 100 fold. That's a massive crop. Nobody gets that crop. It's a supernatural crop. Why? Because it was a supernaturally prepared heart. It was a heart that had been tilled by the word of God. It's a heart that had been made ready by the Holy Spirit. And the soil that was tilled supernaturally will result in supernatural fruit. So the question that we must ask ourselves in verse 20 is, where is your fruit? There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. John 15 says that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. So if we're not abiding in him, if we don't have fruit, we're not abiding in him. And if we're not abiding in him, it says that we're cut off and thrown into the fire. John 8, 31, if you abide in me and my word, you are my disciples. Hebrews Hebrews 3, 14, you have become partakers of Christ if you hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Colossians chapter 1, 23, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. But please note, and this is so crucial, it would be very easy for us to hear this, read this passage, hear of these soils, and say, okay, now my job is to go and bear fruit. And now you just fixate on fruit. I need to be fruitful. I need to do good works. That's not where the fruitfulness comes from. The fruitfulness does not come from the seed saying, I want to be fruitful and and working on being fruitful. No, the, the fruitfulness comes by the soil being ready to receive and by the seed just taking root and growing. If you want to bear fruit, then receive Christ. And as you receive him, Receive him for him. Love him more than you love anything in this world. Treasure him above all things. Follow him no matter what comes. And if you love him for him, the fruit will be inevitable. It will be inevitable. You don't do good works to save yourself. Once you are saved by the grace of God, apart from any good work you could ever do, once you're saved, then good works will naturally flow. They will naturally come out of you. I was talking to somebody this week about the gospel. They were a non-believer, and I asked them, what do you think the main message of the Bible is? If you could sum up, what do you think the main points of the Bible, the main message of the Bible is? What do you think it is? And they said, just be a loving, good person and try your best. And I said, what if I told you actually the point of the Bible is the exact opposite of that, right? The exact opposite. The main storyline of the Bible is the exact opposite of that. We cannot be good enough. We need to be perfect to get to heaven. If we want to get there on our own, we need to be sinless. None of us is sinless. We've all done bad things. We've all felt guilt and shame. We know that. And the whole point of the Bible is that that's why Jesus is sent. We have a rescuer who says you cannot save yourself. So I'm going to come and save you. I'm gonna do the work on your behalf. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus was born as a baby to live out our humanity in front of us, to live a sinless, perfect life that you and I needed to live in order to get to heaven on our own, but we can't live because we're sinners. So Jesus is born lives a perfect sinless life, and then at the cross, he dies bearing our penalty. He takes our sin upon himself. We were just studying this in Sunday school this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin. He was not a sinner. He never had a sinful thought, never had a sinful emotion. And God the Father took all of our sin and put it on Jesus so that Jesus became sin so that the Father could punish Jesus as if he was punishing us Because he took all of our sin and put it on Jesus. So God the Father treats Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life in order that God the Father could treat me as if I had lived Jesus's perfect life. The main story of the Bible is not try to be a good person, try to be a loving person, and God grades on a curve. No, the main purpose of the Bible, the main point of the Bible is to show us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. There's no way that we could be good enough to get to God. And that's why we desperately need Jesus. And for those who understand that, that's why we desperately love Jesus. How in the world could we not love somebody who says, I'll do everything that you can't do. I'll be everything that you can't be. I'll take every punishment that you can't bear so that you can be in my family forgiven, free, and forever loved, fully known, and fully loved. I would just plead with you, if you do not love Jesus, if you don't follow him, it's because you don't know him. That's what John tells us, right? John says we love him because he first loved us. So if you don't understand the love he has for you, then maybe you would say with this individual that I spoke to this week, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I try my best. I try my hardest. I'm a loving person. Doesn't mean you're not a nice person. I think everybody in this room is a nice person. You're a nice, decent, upstanding citizen. Praise the Lord. You're a nice person. But are you perfect? That's what you have to be. You have to be perfect. None of us is. None of us ever could be. And that's why Jesus says, I'll be perfect for you. I'll be perfect in your place. Somebody who understands that message, who understands the gospel, receives it and bears fruit. Why? Because his love is now living in you and radiating through you. His Holy Spirit lives in you so that you bear the fruit of the Spirit. You can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. So if you're here this morning, you love Jesus and you say, I wanna bear more fruit. Don't stare at fruitfulness, stare at Christ. And as you stare at him, the fruit will start growing. Love him more. Abide in him and the fruit will grow. Four different soils. Soil number one is an indifferent, hard-hearted soil, not receiving the word at all. Soil number two is a superficial, shallow soil. Soil number three is a distracted, divided in devotion, loves other things other than Jesus. And the fourth soil is a receptive soil and bears fruit. This story is about a person's response to the word of god being dependent on the condition of your heart. Notice nothing is said here about the sower and his skill, right? It's not that the first soil rejects because the sower had the wrong seed bag. It's not that the second soil is struggling to bear fruit because the soil was the, the sower was wearing the wrong clothes that day. Nothing's said about the method of the sower casting the seed. This isn't a parable about how we Share the gospel, methods that we use to share the gospel. Some people would say, well, if the sower were just clever enough, culturally relevant enough, then the soils would receive. No, this parable says no, it's not about that. No discussion about weather. No discussion about those things. It's just the condition of the soil. It's the condition of the soil. So the basic truth of this parable is simply the result of all Gospel proclamation is dependent on the condition of the heart, of the hearer. And fruit is the only evidence that one has heard the word rightly. A holy life and a holy love. So who are you? Which soil are you? Hard-hearted, shallow and superficial... You love other things other than Jesus, or you love Jesus more than anything in the world. Who are you in this text? Which soil are you? Where is your heart? Are you receptive to the word of God? Are you pursuing the cares of this world? Are you easily shaken by trials? Do you expect God to give you a comfortable life because you follow him? And where is your fruit? Can you see fruit? as you abide in Christ? Can you see it summed up in loving God and loving people? Can you see it? Do you delight to learn from the word? Or do you dread it? In general, do you feel that God addresses you when you read the word, when you hear sermons? Or in general, is your heart disinterested? Over the last year, has Jesus become more precious to you or more bland? Do you take an active role in growing your faith Or do you take a passive role, expecting others to care for you? Would you say that you have a teachable heart, a humble heart? Or would you say you have a judgmental heart that wants to correct the faults of others around you? Are you growing more eager in knowing Jesus and worshiping him, or do you grow less eager? Does God's word linger in your heart and in your life throughout the week, or does his word just seem to never come to mind. You hear it, and then as you walk out those doors, you don't think about it until the next Sunday. These are all questions that we have to ask as we come to this text. But as we always say, we are not the main characters in the Bible. We're not the heroes of the Bible. The Bible ultimately isn't about us. And so as we see these four soils, it'd be very easy to just examine our hearts, and we should do that, but it'd be very easy to stop there. And that's why I said earlier, we need to examine our hearts, yes, but we need to look up and we need to look out to Christ. Because here's the reality. You here this morning have heard the word again. You've heard the gospel again. The seed has been thrown again. You have been given the opportunity to turn and trust in Jesus again. You are fully known, even at this very second, you might be a hard-hearted soil, fully known by God, and yet he doesn't withhold the seed from you. He has thrown it out again so that your heart could receive, and he will continually be doing that so that your heart has another chance to receive and to bear fruit. So yes, this parable is all about soils, but this parable mainly is about the gracious nature of the sower who keeps on giving us opportunities to receive. How awesome is that grace? He doesn't look look at us and say, you're a lost cause, I'm done with you. He says, here's the gospel again. Receive it. Don't harden your heart, receive it. Humble your heart and receive it. God, we thank you so much that we are fully known and fully loved. We thank you for Jesus, who is our greatest treasure. And God, I pray that you would save some in this room who don't know you as Lord, who don't love you, who don't treasure you. God, I pray we would do the hard work of looking and examining our own hearts and asking the question, which soil am I? But God, may we not stop there. May we run to Christ who again is giving us an invitation, a wide open invitation. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary and I will give you rest. And God, I pray that you would give rest to people here this morning as they take their burden of sin and their burden of trying to be good enough and they finally relinquish both. And they say, I'm done with it. I'm done with sin. I'm done with ever trying to be good enough that you would love me. I just receive the love that you have for me through Jesus Christ, not because of anything that I could ever do, but because you love me. Why are we guests at this table? Why have we been given this invitation? It's not because we're good enough. It's because you are good, it's because you do good, and because you are so kind. We love you, we pray it all in your name, amen.